0: We're so glad that you're with us this morning, and uh, we are starting a new series today, and I'm very excited about it. Have been for quite some time. Defining moments really has to do with everything in our lives that are defining moments that happen to us over the timeline of our whole lives that affect us for the rest of our lives. And Defining moments can be all kinds of things. Some of them can be tragic moments. Others can be incredible moments of opportunity and blessing, But we have a certain number of defining moments in our life. I think we would all agree with that. And there are these mountain peaks of life where you can look back and you say, well, I remember that happening. I remember where I was when this happened. And I remember how I felt when this particular thing took place. And my life has not really been the same since that moment. And so today, we're going to begin talking about defining moments over the next few weeks. Today, I want to talk about immovable life events, events that happen that can't change. We can't change them. It doesn't seem like anyone can change them, and we have to learn to deal with these immovable life events. And the title of the message today is A Moment of Silence. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians today, chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And stand with me, and we'll read God's Word together in just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. By the way, as we walk through this text, Keep in mind, this text is written by the Apostle Paul about a defining moment in his life, an immovable life event that he prayed that God would remove, but God did not remove, and so he found something of God's provision in the midst of that disappointing, unanswered prayer. Now, some of the terminology I'm using is terminology you probably have experienced in life, a mountain you can't move, a prayer you pray that didn't get answered the way you thought it would get answered, Uh, a surprising provision that God has made in your life or one you're still looking for, all those things will connect with us in a powerful way. As I read this text, uh, keep in mind, Paul has had an incredible revelation of God. He's caught up into third, third heaven. In fact, the first seven verses of chapter 12 talk about this man that God revealed so much to. And the Bible says, as a result of the surpassing value of the revelations, the surpassing glory of what he saw, if you will. God allowed a thorn in the flesh to happen in his life to keep him humble, to keep him dependent upon God. And that's where we pick up the text in verse 7. Paul says this why himself. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored, that means he prayed desperately, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, Paul says, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Man, this is an incredible passage. It's gonna be an amazing encouragement to you today to see how it built up Paul's life and how it can affect you. Father, in Jesus' name, let this passage powerfully touch our hearts. And Father, in the same way that Paul was lifted up and the same way that he was encouraged and in the same way that he experienced your amazing grace in his life, his ministry, I pray, God, that we in this room will experience it to the same degree. Thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, to have every resource we need at the time we need it the most. We believe you for this, and we look forward to seeing it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated if you would. So this uh, passage deals with a defining moment in the life of a very, very great man. The Apostle Paul. And this text talks about how God met with him in a really, really troubling time. And I'm convinced that when you see how God met with Paul in his time of great trouble, you'll see how God can meet you in your time of great trouble. That's the purpose of this text for us today. You'll see that as it unfolds. I've used this passage as my personal life verse for many, many years. At some point in life, probably about the time I was 20 or 22, I began to look back at all my life leading up to that moment and realized that just about everything I was experiencing, I could trace back to this passage, to this text, because I found a lot of things in my life that were problems and insurmountable, things I couldn't move away, couldn't get around, and prayer that God didn't answer. And I looked back at this verse and realized just how powerful God used this verse in my own life, and I hope my own story will help you with any immovable life events in your life. And I'm convinced we all have them in some form or another. My story really begins back at my very first waking memory. Everybody has a first memory, right? How many of you can remember the earliest time in your life and it's a really definite memory. Would you raise your hand if you can remember that, that memory? I hope they're all good memories. I hope it's you on a swing set somewhere in a beautiful park or something like that. But my very first memory, my very first memory that I can acknowledge at the earliest point was The memory of my parents in our bathroom pushing me into a bathtub full of ice. I was just under six years of age, and I remember looking on their faces and seeing their desperation. I was confused at what was going on, and uh, there they were pushing me in this bathtub full of ice, and it was freezing cold, obviously, and I didn't understand what was going on, but what had happened was I had contracted a very high fever fever. It was over 106 degrees for a number of hours. The doctor on the phone advised them to put me in a bathtub of ice in order to break the fever or else I could be in danger of organ failure at some point and actually die. And so that is my first waking moment. And to make the long story short, the fever broke and uh, I got better. But within the year, my parents learned that at that moment of that high temperature in my body, I lost 80% of my hearing. And within a few years, I lost eventually 95% of my hearing, which means that without hearing aids, my world went suddenly silent, completely and totally silent. Now, my parents didn't realize I'd lost my hearing. When they gave me instructions and I didn't obey them, they thought I was just ignoring them. (laughs) It was a first-grade teacher within a couple of days after I was placed in the first grade that said, your son has a hearing loss. And he's not ignoring you. People still think I ignore them sometimes, but the reality is I really do have a good reason, right? And so I entered immediately into that world of silence where people are moving their lips with all kinds of action taking place around me, but no sound associated with that at all. And really no comprehension of what people were saying to me. I realized by face expressions, they were communicating with me, they were looking right at me, but I didn't know what they were saying. And at the defining moment in my life happened, when all that unfolded. And from that moment on, really, things began to change in a different direction from what it would have gone otherwise, and a different direction from what other people were taking. As six- and seven-year-old kids, I was going in a completely different direction. Imagine going from a hearing world to a silent world in a very short period of time. Imagine trying to adjust to school where... Everyone else just simply watches the teacher or listens to the teacher and they hear what she might say and they do what she might say. And I'm looking around like, what did she say? And what am I supposed to be doing? The, those early hearing aids they fitted me with were awkward devices to say the least. They were very large ear phone type things that I wore around my ears, larger than my ears themselves. And they were connected to a, a little box that went into a pocket. Now listen, no first grade boy really likes to wear a button-up shirt with a pocket, but I had to do that. I was the ultimate nerd at the first grade. I won the championship for that. And It was awkward in every way, but it was the only way that I was able to hear any sound at all. The only way I was able to really connect with anything going on around me. And I knew I stood out. I knew it was different. I knew it was visible. I knew other people would stare, and, and I didn't feel Like I was in a good place at all, even as a young boy. Gratefully, I was surrounded by some incredible people. I was surrounded by a mom and a dad that were as spiritual as I can possibly imagine, godly people who were incredibly patient, incredibly loving, incredibly loving and encouraging to me. I was living in a small community where my my parents raised me, and this small community was just kind of a one big family. There were 700 people total in the community. It still does not have a stoplight in that town. And yet, that town adopted me as family. And I loved it and I appreciated it. I had some great teachers. I remember the, the first and last name of my first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade teacher because They went the second mile in helping me do what I needed to do. And at some point early on, my parents made a strategic decision not to send me to a school for the deaf, which was typical uh, for most students that have lost their hearing to that degree. My profound hearing loss meant that there was not going to be a big chance that I could articulate words well, even though I'd already learned to speak. Not a great chance that I would be able to do well in school. But my parents... Believed as they prayed through that, that they wanted me wired for the hearing world. And so they began to secure people who would train me how to read lips, how to pronounce words, how to read out loud, how to read and then how to read out loud. And one particular young woman who was a a college graduate, who worked with me every day for almost three years, about two or three hours a day, uh, did a phenomenal job of teaching me how to read lips teaching me how to pronounce words. The problem was she was from South Houston, and I sound like someone from South Houston, y'all. I got her accent. (laughs) My parents have perfect Midwestern accents, and I do not. I'm also a killer at reading lips still to this day, so be careful what you say to the person next to you because (laughs) I might know what was said. But this event and all surrounding that event made me feel like I was behind instead of ahead. It made me feel like something was wrong instead of something right. And I can remember moving forward, searching for ways to cope instead of just learning things that I needed to be learning, like reading, writing, and arithmetic. It made me feel inferior. It made me feel lacking. I can remember as a young boy worrying about my future what will I do? What do people do that can't hear? Where do they go? Where do they work? What happens to them if they can't hear anything? And I found myself asking different questions, and most people my age were asking questions like, why me? And God, where are you? And if God can do anything, why doesn't he change this in my life? And I also realized now, all these years later, that we often ask these kinds of big questions when huge challenges come in life. It's natural, isn't it? And all of us have had something that happens in our life that makes us turn to God and say, why me? And where were you? And what are you doing? Immovable life events tend to unfold in three phases. And we see them in this text. And I've experienced them personally, and I believe you have too. Those three phases would be problem, prayer, and provision. Problem, prayer, and provision. You know what problems do. Problems drive us to God, to prayer. And when we go to God, then we find that God can meet our need, but it may not be the way we think he's going to meet our need, but provision is always there. And I I, I fully identify with those three words and those three phases because I've lived these out over the years. And the more in ministry I've been over these many, many years, the more I realize everybody has had some immovable life event happen to them, good or bad, visible or invisible. And they're all dealing with that in some way. And it's a defining moment in their lives. Well, I want you to know today that the Apostle Paul, this great man of God, had a defining moment like what we're talking about. And this defining moment teaches us these phases, teaches us also how God meets us in our moments that are immovable, unchangeable, and definitely negative in our lives. When we can't see the way out of it, we have Paul's example here of how God met him. And it all begins with, first of all, an unsolvable problem. If you go back to verse 7 where Paul begins his description, he says, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Commentators over the years and scholars over the years have debated about what Paul's thorn in the flesh actually was, but nobody really has a good answer to what it is. We have a number of possibilities When you look at the scriptures himself, you can see some things come to the surface. They could have been personal issues. He called it a thorn in the flesh. So we get the idea that something physical was going on. The wording itself in the original language deals with a a stake that usually is normally used in war to impale someone else, and Paul uses that kind of word. Some think he had eyesight problems because of his difficulty in seeing. Some thought he had piercing migraines that inhibited his ability to move around and travel. Others said the wounds from being beaten as the preacher of the gospel were part of what these thorns in the flesh were. Still others said the betrayal that he experienced, the deception that was always attempted on him, and the disappointment in his life were these personal issues. Others say, no, they're spiritual conflicts. Because in the text it says a messenger of Satan. Satan's mentioned brings us to the reality of spiritual warfare. So certainly whatever was going on could be part of the spiritual warfare that Paul was experiencing. I think we would all agree Paul was on the front line. He was that man that went into new cultures with the gospel, so obviously the enemy would want to stop him. In one interesting place of scripture in Acts chapter 19, verse 15, We read about seven sons of Sceva who are trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, and the demon actually speaks to them and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? It's a really interesting text. But my point is, even the demons knew who Paul was. So Paul was probably under some sort of spiritual oppression from the demonic world as well. And some say, no, these were people problems. Maybe demonically inspired people' problems. the word "messenger" insinuates that certain people were bringing messages to him to discourage him. Rick Renner makes a great case about this possibility that really resonates. Number one, it's entirely possible that people are the opposed leaders in the gospel, and that's what was going on with him. But number two, we could biblically verify names of people that opposed Paul. But the main idea of this text is not exactly what the hardship was, but that there was incredible hardship in the life of Paul. And it was an immovable mountain. He couldn't do anything about it. And nothing was changing about that mountain. The point is that no one knows exactly what it was, what the thorn in the flesh was, but that it was present. And I think that mystery is intentional. Why is this so mysterious and all-encompassing? Because I think God wants every one of us to identify with this passage. Because if we said, no, it's because he was an apostle that Satan directly opposed him, that would exclude you from that picture, perhaps, and me from that picture. If we said, oh, no, it's a physical ailment, and yet you are physically healthy, that would exclude you from that picture. I think God makes this obscure for a reason. Because he wants every single one of us to experience what Paul experienced in the end when we have immovable life events. And I'm convinced again that everybody in this room has something in their lives that affected them in a powerful way, some visible, some invisible. For people like me, it's visible, it's evident, you can tell, but for others, maybe nobody knows about it. It might be personal, it might be invisible. Few know about it. It could be a traumatic experience that happened to you a devastating loss, an incredible disappointment that took place in your life that you haven't gotten over, an overwhelming fear or doubt or pain that pulverizes you, or maybe a catastrophic failure where you thought you were going in the right direction and you miserably failed at whatever that was and it can't get undone and you can't fix it. In any case, these kinds of immovable life events bring us to the place where we can't do anything about our problem at all. They were just kind of there. I wrote this down the other day. It defies human solutions, and when it does, God has us in a position where we must depend on him. I've got to tell you, that's the bigger work God is doing always in your life. He's always about you depending on Him. He's always getting you to believe in Him and trust in Him even more than you possibly might imagine. It's not about just giving you an easy life. It's not about just lifting problems out of your life. God wants you to depend on Him in every way. And when you trust Him in and through your situations, you're going to experience some things you might not imagine. Now, these unsolvable problems are, are things that we actually kind of like when we see them In other places, like the movies. We love unsolvable problems in the movies, don't we? We go to movies because there's an unsolvable problem. There's a mystery at at how it's gonna be fixed. And we love when the hero comes through, right? That's how we are motivated to go to movies. And there's always some sort of a hero out there and they become our hero because they come through. But you know, it's also the theme of dozens of characters in scripture. The unsolvable problem of sin. The unsolvable problem of Israel's bondage in the Old Testament, who will set these people free? The unsolvable problem of the Red Sea when they came to the Red Sea and didn't have a way across. The unsolvable problem of Job's affliction in the book of Job. The unsolvable problem of Goliath the giant until David came along. The unsolvable problem of 5,000 hungry people listening to Jesus teach on a hillside in Galilee that day. How do you fix that problem? The unsolvable problem of Lazarus dead in the tomb for four days until Jesus comes and resurrects him from the dead. The unsolvable problem of Jesus being crucified on a cross. What do we do with our Messiah when he's being impaled on that cross? Unsolvable problems are what God specializes in. And over and over in the scripture, God comes through. As a matter of fact, scripture constantly reminds us of this one verse that we find in Luke chapter one, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Say that verse with me, for nothing will be impossible with God. So unsolvable problems in our life should lead us to the next phase, which is prayer. We're driven to prayer. We're driven even into seasons of prayer. And sometimes we experience what I call an unanswered prayer, which is what Paul experienced. Look at verse 8. He says, concerning this thorn in the flesh, concerning this pain that wouldn't go away, I implored the Lord three times that it might lead me. Now, the the word implored is is a, a passionate word. To implore is to beg, to plead. It's not just a casual prayer. It's not just making a request. But this is Paul on his face crying out to God. Now, it's not just three prayers. This text says there are three separate seasons of prayer where Paul went to the Lord over and over. This is Paul drawing as close as he can to God and continuing to pray. And probably words like this, I'm going to follow you, but please remove this so I can do it better. I'm going to follow you, I'm not going to leave you, I'm not going to turn my back on you, Lord. And his sincerity and his earnestness and everything that makes a prayer answerable makes it surprising that God didn't do that and answer that prayer. It's Paul. (laughs) It's the Apostle Paul. It's not me and you praying. This is is one of God's men that God raised up and rescued from a, a, a deadly direction and placed him in a place on the globe for his glory, for his honor, and God did not answer that prayer. And you know what that feels like, don't you? How many of you have had a prayer over the years that you have not seen the answer to? I've got my hand up. How about you? How many of you have experienced that? I've I've had many times like that. I can't tell you the endless number of times I cried out to God to change my hearing to heal me. It seems so simple to me as a boy that if God is powerful, if God can raise people from the dead, if God is granting salvation for those that put trust in his son's name, Jesus, then he could heal me. My godly parents prayed. I mean, I trusted their prayers more than I did mine as a young boy, and I heard my mom and dad call out to God and ask God to heal my hearing loss. Now, I remember in junior high being desperate, asking God it changed that in high school years when it became more of an aggravation to me, more visible. It began to hold me back socially and in other ways. I remember being on college, on a college spring break trip, actually a mission trip, where those that we were ministering to paused and surrounded me with dozens of people, including a leader that anointed me with oil and was convinced that God was going to heal me on that campus on that day. And we trusted God. We begged and we prayed and believed God deeply that God would heal me, but that prayer was never answered in the way we asked for. And you've been there too, haven't you? It's part of the process. It's part of what you have to go through in walking from this insurmountable problem to this time of prayer. But it also leaves us with some questions, doesn't it? Let me give you some answers to a question of why doesn't God always answer our prayer or always change our situation to the way We're asking, why doesn't he do that? Well, there are three ways in Scripture we know that he doesn't answer our prayer our way. Some situations he allows to transform our character. God allows us to remain under a certain difficulty, physical or otherwise, because he's changing our character. He's transforming us. It's always God's will that we become conformed to the image of Jesus. But in James chapter 1, there's a great text that reminds us of this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, it matures us. It perfects us. It grows our character. So some situations transform us. But some situations he allows to testify of his grace. In other words, he allows us to go through these times so he can demonstrate his sufficiency when we're struggling. Demonstrates how he meets our need when we don't have a way of doing it on our own. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11, Jesus heard the story that he was encountering with Lazarus. And he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. In other words, this person wasn't going to die, but he was going to be raised up just for the glory of God. But that very line also reminds us that some situations he allows to transport us home. Sometimes sickness isn't to death. Sometimes sickness does lead us to the point of death, and God is calling us home. I remember one mentor of mine saying to me if after he went through many, many illnesses and had the do not resuscitate kind of a marker on his wrist in the hospital. He said, if, if I go, if I die, do not bring me back. Do not put those paddles on me. If I die, you let me stay in heaven. I'm not coming back to you, I'm staying with the Lord. That's a good mindset to have. But sometimes God uses certain situations and circumstances to bring us home. So God has reasons. Beyond our comprehension, why he allows certain things to happen and doesn't allow other things to happen, but ultimately they are for our good. God is always working for our good. And so one of the things we have to learn to do is to hold our prayer requests loosely in our hands. And we have to hold our expectations loosely. We have to hold our life loosely because God literally has it in his big hands and we don't really need it in our hands. It's never been in our hands anyway. And what we have to do is rest in his grip whatever that means. And that's what trust looks like. God, I really want you to change this situation, Paul said. But since you haven't, I'm just gonna keep serving you and keep trusting you. And that leads us to the third thing, what I call an unexpected provision. Paul said in verse nine, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So God spoke to Paul and said, I'll make it possible to bear. I'll give you grace. And the grace that I give you will be sufficient for anything that you need. In other words, God was saying to Paul, you've been endowed with everything you can possibly need to overcome, and I'll keep giving it to you, even though it's inexhaustible, moment by moment by moment, you reach for that grace, it's gonna be there. The word grace, by the way, is often interpreted enablement. It reminds us that he gives us just the strength we need just for what the challenge is. And I call this grace an inexhaustible well. It'll never run dry. Let me tell you, the grace of Jesus that saves us from our sin, the grace of Jesus that washes our sin clean so that we can be right with a holy God forever and ever in heaven, that grace is so big in order to clean us. Everything else on this planet is small stuff compared to that big thing. You've been reconciled with the Holy God. That's a big deal. That's what grace does. But grace also helps you while you're on this planet. With all the challenges you have in your life, you'll always have all you need to do the will of God. So it's not, I'll give you more, but, but what I've given you already is enough. So try grace and trust grace. It's proven in your weakness. Now, some of you are still back here in this prayer period. Why will God not answer my prayer? And I understand that. I've been in and out of that from time to time. But here's what I've learned. Listen carefully. When God does not answer the prayer, you may be asking for the wrong thing. Mm. At some point, you just say, okay. Then whenever you want to make it different, you make it different. But until then, I'm going with what I have and what you've given me. At some point, we just have to say that. At some point, we just have to trust that He heard us, that He's aware, uh, that He's not tied up with other important <laughs> events. He knows everything going on in our lives. He could change it in a moment. Yes, and if He doesn't, it's because of His sovereignty. Yeah. And He's got a different plan. And that different plan is this unexpected provision. I love the idea of that line My grace is sufficient for you. Now, look at how it worked for Paul. Paul went on to be the greatest apostle of them all, the most prolific author of the New Testament scripture that we read 2,000 years later. He, He brought thousands to healing and deliverance and freedom In his lifetime, we never find that God ever removed that thorn in the flesh. But what he did do was give him grace day by day by day to deal with everything he had to deal with. And he continued to draw from that inexhaustible well of enablement and grace that allowed him to carry out his life and even be content in that weakness. Because of his thorn in the flesh, Paul became known not for pride and ability, which is what he was known for before he came to Christ, but for his weakness and his dependence on the grace of God. By the way, that's what you want to be known for, not pride, but weakness and dependence upon God because that shows that God is working in your life and you're trusting him to do it. And that's where God wants all of us at some point in our lives to live that way. And basically, we now read the words of this apostle Paul as we read what he wrote, and it's full of grace. Let me read some of those words for you. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse five, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy, our sufficiency is from God. Or well, 1 Corinthians fifteen, ten. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Some of you will argue with me about who authored the book of Hebrews, but I believe it was the Apostle Paul. And look at these words. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How many of you have looked at those verses over the years and drawn all kinds of encouragement from them? You know the common word in all these? Grace. Grace. Grace and more grace, grace to help in time of need, sufficiency that you don't have, superabundance that you could never have apart from His grace. And I'll be the first one to admit that it's not easy to understand and walk and wait for the blessing of sufficient grace, but it comes through a lot of disappointment, sometimes a lot of grief, but Paul walked through that, got the blessing, and now has the testimony of it. Grace emerges in our life when we keep trusting God in spite of no change and what we're asking Him and our steadfastness in continuing to follow Him in spite of that unanswered prayer. Notice how Paul concludes that passage in verse 9. He says this. He said, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. I've always thought that to be a strange phrase. I will boast. I'll brag about my weaknesses. Why? Why? so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. When you get to the barest common denominator of what Paul says in verse 9 and 10, it's this. I have no complaints with God. No complaints. I'll just keep serving Him and keep trusting Him to the day I die. And we have every evidence that that's exactly what He did. Now my own story of how God's grace was poured out in my life is that it was poured out all around me i know i'm not the only one that has a hearing loss and i'm not trying to magnify that but i am, am trying to say it was an immovable issue i had in my life and still have in my life that god makes a way through and around but i see his grace poured out all around me through people that god placed around me friends who understood an incredible set of parents who would not let me give up, who kept quoting the book of Philippians to me, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. And every time I said, I can't, my mom would respond by saying, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. She would not let up. My wife, who had amazing patience. Oh, my goodness. Amazing patience and encouragement. A family that understood. It's amazing how much grace was poured out in the churches that I practiced, that I I pastored, who practiced unconditional love and grace to me. You people in this church who accepted me for who I was 16 years ago when I came in spite of any deficiency that some may have seen. Co-workers who gave respect, who took up slack, who helped me hear the things I needed to hear in the gaps when I didn't hear them. The joy I get from identifying with people who think things are holding them back and I can look at them and say, I understand what you think and how you feel, but that's not the end of the story. That God is able to give you all the grace you need to do all he's caused you to do. I love identifying with people who can't hear, can't see, can't walk, whatever it is in their life, I love to encourage them because I've been there in a sense. I'm amazed at how God's grace is poured out through an uncanny ability to hear what I need to hear and not hear what I don't need to hear. I'm kind of surprised at what I do hear sometimes, and some of you are too. I love the idea that 95% of my hearing is gone, so therefore 95% of criticism directed my way. I never hear. I have no complaints. If it were up to me, I'm not sure I would bring healing. If I could just flip the switch and get all my hearing back, I'm not sure I would. In fact, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. Because if I said yes to that, I would have to stop the flow of grace that comes every day for me to get me through all that I need to get through. There are some advantages to silence, you know. And I've learned after a lot of years that I'm not behind. I'm ahead. Some of you are just now getting hearing aids and I'm way ahead of you. (laughs) When I was 10 years old, my audiologist said to me when I was complaining about having to wear hearing aids, he asked me some of the reasons I didn't want to wear them and you know, they're awkward, they're visible, people make fun of me and on and on. And I don't know how wise he actually was or whether he was just trying to encourage me, but he said, Johnny said, someday all your friends will wear hearing aids. (laughs) I didn't know he meant 55 years later. I was speaking at a Gideon convention not too long ago. A group of people well over 65 years of age, most of them were. I asked them to raise their hands if they had hearing aids. 75% of them had hearing aids on. I told them, I'm way ahead of you. I've had them since I was six years old, so I know about this stuff. (laughs) But I also think I'm ahead in the way of having to trust God in things. Amen. You know, there's something about an immovable object in your life, an unchangeable event that makes you trust God. Not that we would go seeking them or looking for them. I'm not, I'm not saying we should look for tough situations to walk into. I'm saying that when you, you face them, realize that God's going to grow you through them. He's gonna build elements in your life that make you stronger, more patient. He'll give you character you wouldn't have if you didn't have to go through those times, And, and when you go through those times, you come out ahead, not behind, and learning to walk with God when nobody else maybe has experienced that. But ultimately, and I don't want you to miss this, ultimately, your life will not be defined by immovable life events but in how you allow God's grace to work through them. That's what's gonna identify you. Not how big the tragedy was, not how heartbroken you were at that point, not not how unfair the thing was, but how you trust Him in that moment. That's what will characterize your life until the day you die. And you want your life characterized by faith in a God who has enough grace to get you through. Amen? Ron Dunn was a a great teacher, a great pastor and author. And in his book, When Heaven is Silent, he shares something that he shared with his church after he'd come back from a sabbatical, which was taken because his oldest son committed suicide. The ultimate tragic event for a parent is that. And he took some time to just get his bearings, to get back on his feet spiritually. And when he came back to the church, he read these words to them. He said, God's power and authority are such that even the actions of the enemies of God and his people must be subservient to his will. If this is true, it means my complaints against life and God, no matter how understandable, are not legitimate. If this is true, it means that I have no right to cling to anger or to harbor bitterness against whatever injustices I may have suffered. If this is true, it means that if God subtracted one pain, one heartbreak, one disappointment from my life, I would be less the person I am now, less than the person God wants me to be, and my ministry would be less than what he intends. And if this is true, it means that I can climb over those hurts and disappointments, over the tears and heartache, over the graves and sleepless nights, and stand on top of that ash heap, and declare, "All these things, God is working together for my good." It's powerful. It's deep. It's real. You know, Romans 8:28 does say, "God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are the called according to His purpose." And I have a feeling in this room, there are lots of people that love God and lots of people who are the called according to his purpose. And if you're that, then all things will work together for good in your life. That's just the truth that you learn when you go through the hardest times of your life. So a moment of silence can be a blessing in the end. I'm an immovable life event, no matter how difficult and tragic it could be the greatest thing to climb on and to learn to experience the inexhaustible wealth of God's grace in your life. Test it. Try it. Trust it. And watch him come through. You know, we first experience God's grace when we place our trust in Christ for salvation. That's when it begins. His grace to forgive. His grace to give us eternal life. His grace to make us right with the Father. And when you get that grace, you get everything you need until He calls you home. But it all begins there. You can't get His grace without getting His salvation first. And you can't get His salvation without having enough to help you all the time you're on this planet. They go together, that inexhaustible well of grace. Maybe today you need to take that step and put your faith and trust in Christ, who by His grace gave His life for you on the cross, and by His power, Will help you through every day of your life when i pray at the end of our prayer we'll have our decision stations manned and lit up a chance for you to stop by and ask some questions or maybe make a decision today to put your life in the hands of christ i invite you who are part of our service and maybe your guests for the first time to our guest reception center i'd love to meet you and tell you about our church let's stand together Father, today as I pray, I am very aware of those in the room today, many of whom face and have for some time immovable life issues. And Lord, I don't pretend to know what they are, but Lord, you know. You're intimately acquainted with every person in every situation, every event, every hurt, every pain. And, Lord, I ask you today that you be very real to to every person in the room today. Let them know of your presence. Let them know of your sufficiency, that if they learn to test you and try you throughout their hardship, that you will be there. Let them know it's not overnight. Let them know it's not something that happens instantaneously, but it is real and it is powerful and it is forever. And Father, my prayer today is that you will draw us closer to yourself. Don't let us run away. Don't let us turn our back on you. Draw us closer to you in our heartbroken difficulty. And there we will meet you in your grace. I ask this in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.